Did we forget to add adaptation energy use into our mitigation calculations? And is cryptocurrency getting a green update? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hoke, a climate communicator. Today is Monday, August 29th. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. See, this is what happens when I don't read all the newsletters. I missed flash flooding in central Mississippi last Wednesday that came after over a foot of rain fell in a 24-hour period. This was another 1 in 500 year event. A nursing home had to be evacuated, but no deaths have been reported. Meanwhile, the Moose Fire in Idaho has scorched almost 97,000 acres, or about 40,000 hectares, and has been going since July 17th. Idaho, like the rest of the West, is in its worst drought in 1,200 years, so wildfires spark quick and burn hot and fast. It is currently only 41% contained. Luckily, it's fairly far away from most structures and people. Up to one in six native tree species in the continental U.S. are at risk of extinction, according to a new assessment published in the journal Plants, People, Planet. Between invasive insects, surging diseases, and climate change-induced wildfires and drought, these trees have a lot of stressors. Yet out of 881 tree species, only eight are federally recognized as endangered or threatened. More than two-thirds of U.S. native tree species had never been assessed for their extinction risk, and others hadn't been assessed in decades, despite conditions changing since then. 17 tree species the assessment deems at risk are not conserved in botanical gardens or scientific collections either, so they can be lost to history. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature is apparently a bit plant-blind with its red list, with mammals representing far beyond their fair share compared to trees. Plant blindness is a human tendency to overlook the plants that surround us, and it hinders us from paying attention to the things that suck up carbon dioxide and give us oxygen. If you want to learn more about these gaps in research, definitely check out the source list linked in the description. Let's continue with the climate studies. NASA, NOAA, FEMA, the EPA, and the DOD, and several other U.S. government agencies project that the sea will rise between 10 and 12 inches, or 25 to 30 centimeters, on average above today's levels by 2050. That's how much the seas rose over the last 100 years. The report is an update of a 2017 original global and regional sea level rise scenarios for the United States, which forecasted sea level rise to about the year 2150. This update provides a near-term projection for 2050. According to the report, quote, by 2050, moderate, typically damaging, flooding is expected to occur on average more than 10 times as often as it does today and can be intensified by local factors. Major flooding is expected to happen more than five times as often as today, so like one every five years instead of one every 25 years. Because the sea doesn't rise around the world uniformly, parts of the East Coast could actually see sea levels as high as 18 inches by 2050. These projections will help local, state, and federal governments better prepare for sea level rise, coastal flooding, saltwater inundation, coastal erosion, and hurricanes. Frankly, government agencies need to prepare for sea level rise at least 80 years into the future, though, which could be anywhere from 2 to 7 feet, or 0.6 to 2.1 meters, depending on how we do at curbing emissions. If you want to know how the different sea level rise projections will look on the U.S. coastlines, I'll leave a link to an interactive map. Let's move away from the U.S. for this next study. 
New research published in the journal Nature Communications looks at a very underrepresented source of energy use, climate adaptation. Climate change has already increased energy use through air conditioning, refrigeration, and heating, for example. Some other adaptation measures that will increase energy use include running more desalinization, water pumping, and water purification operations, and increased use of entertainment appliances if people stay indoors for longer. Hotter temperatures will also affect labor and technology operations. The study quantified how adaptation would impact the final energy use on energy investments and costs, greenhouse gas emissions, and air pollution. They found that adding adaptation measures to the mix leads to higher costs, more emissions, and more air pollution. Mitigation pathways accounting for adaptation would require a 5-30% to 30% higher carbon tax. And the study showed how reducing how long it takes for us to curb emissions and how much warming occurs will reduce our need to factor in adaptation costs. The researchers recommend keeping warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels to avoid the biggest adaptation energy use increases. Time for some climate victories. As parts of the world are getting wetter, city planners are looking to make their cities spongier. Right now, cities are developed so that there's no place for the water to go besides the drains. That results in more flash floods. Auckland, New Zealand is leading this trend of making the city spongier, and it has a lot to do with increasing the number of parks among the buildings. These parks are specifically designed to absorb a lot of water. After a horrible crash that cost crypto users nearly a trillion dollars, the cryptocurrency industry is excited to finally switch to Ethereum in an upgrade called the Merge. If all goes to plan, the Merge should take place on September 15th. Why am I talking about this? Well, a big draw for Ethereum is that mining for Ether is less energy intense than mining for Bitcoin. Right now, cryptocurrency industries use about 1% of global electricity, which is enough to compete with Sri Lanka for carbon emissions. So this could make cryptocurrency a more sustainable currency method. This transition has been eight years in the process because Ethereum is way more complicated. Check out the source list if you want to learn more about that. Over in the US, Earth Justice is suing the EPA for its lax rules around regulating coal ash dumps, which often leak chemicals into the nation's waterways. It filed a suit on behalf of seven environmental or civil rights organizations such as the Sierra Club, the Environmental Integrity Project, and an Indiana branch of the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. The plaintiffs identified nearly 300 open coal ash pit sites in 38 states without any environmental regulations. These sites are disproportionately dumped near lower-income communities and communities of color. Most of the sites represented in the lawsuit are located in the eastern half of the U.S., I'll let you know if anything comes from this. Meanwhile, the Department of the Interior granted $560 million across 24 states to plug more than 10,000 orphaned oil and gas wells. These are low-hanging fruits for reducing methane emissions. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years there in the atmosphere. These wells also pollute communities and recreational spaces. The U.S. government estimates that there are about 129,000 of these wells around the country. We have one climate fail today. Russia is burning off $10 million or 8.4 million pounds worth of gas a day next to Finland's border. Burning off the gas means methane isn't a concern, but the amount of carbon dioxide and soot coming out of these stacks is a really big concern. Scientists are worried it could increase Arctic melting. It has been burning since mid-July, when the Nord Stream 1 pipeline supply shrunk for Germany. 
This could be due to technical issues that result in operators deciding it was easier or safer to burn off the gas, or they could be flaring in front of the rest of Europe to remind them how much power Russia has over the energy sector. Either way, the flare is releasing 9,000 tons of CO2 into the atmosphere daily and releasing soot, also known as black carbon. One melts the Arctic over time, while the other sits on the ice and melts it immediately. And we also have one chemical fail. The 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill that leaked an estimated 210 million gallons into the Gulf of Mexico, killing 80,000 birds, 26,000 marine species, and 11 people, also messed with the local dolphin population's gene expression. This has resulted in about 80% of the dolphins experiencing a weak immune system, inflammation, reproductive failure, lung issues, and cardiac dysfunction. The population has declined by 45% over the last 12 years as if you need another reason to dislike fossil fuels. And let's finish today's episode with some good mental health news. Wyoming, Pennsylvania, Texas, Missouri, and Virginia have all signed up to receive care via the AgriStress helpline for farmers and ranchers. AgriStress is staffed 24-7 and is there to help provide mental health support for farmers and ranchers in a more specialized way than the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is also available. The company's call workers have a better understanding of issues facing the agriculture industry, which is getting more out of control due to climate change and market fluctuations, among many other things. Farm labor help, crisis de-escalation, and financial help are the top three reasons for calls in states so far. And that was your climate recap for Monday, August 29th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. If you're on Twitch, I'll see you on my stream from 9 to 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time today to talk about more climate news. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.